Hi, Crime Junkies. I'm your host, Ashley Flowers. And I'm Britt. And the story I have for you today is about a young mother whose sudden disappearance immediately set off alarm bells for her family. From child abuse allegations to custody battles and hair-raising testimony, investigators thought they knew every detail of what happened to her. But to put a ruthless killer behind bars, they needed proof before time ran out. This is the story of Meng Chi Ji. It's 3.35 p.m. on October 10th, 2019, when a call comes into the 311 Citizens Hotline in Columbia, Missouri. The caller says his name is Joseph Elledge. He's 23, and he's calling to report his 28-year-old wife, Mungchi, missing. The hotline operator passes the information on to the Columbia Police Department, and an officer heads out to their apartment later that evening. According to Gregory Daly's reporting for KRCGTV. When police arrive, Joe explains that he hasn't seen his wife since two nights before, at around 11.30 p.m., just before they went to bed. He says everything was completely normal, literally no red flags, until he woke up to the sound of their infant daughter crying. And when he got up, he realized Meng Chi was just gone. So what, it took him two days to get the baby to stop crying? No. (laughs) Why is he just calling now? No, you're not wrong. So that stuck out to me, too. And honestly, the officers even make note of it. But they're not just going to, like, jump right into interrogating this guy. They're more worried about getting Joe's full version of events first. Mm -hmm. So anyways, Joe goes on to say that when he woke up on the 9th, he found both Mungchi's keys and phone in the apartment, which told him that she hadn't just, like, gone out to run an errand or something. Now, police don't see any signs of forced entry or any signs of a struggle. So at least from what they can tell, it's like she just vanished into thin air. So they asked Joe for more details. And here's the full story he gives police. He says that two nights ago, which would have been October 8th, he gave Meng Chi a massage and his plan was to initiate sex. Of course there was a plan. I, always. Ever. Ever. Yes, true. But he says she denied him. She was basically like, no, I got an early day tomorrow. I just want to go to sleep. So that's what they did. And then the next thing he knew, poof, she was gone. So maybe it's my purity culture upbringing talking, but that massage to sex plan feels like a weird, like, intimate detail to include, doesn't it? It kind of does, right? Like, unless it was important to him, right? Like, if I'm thinking if Eric, like, left. And truthfully, a normal day, like, yeah, there's times where, like, dude, I just, I don't want, I don't need the massage. Like, right. it's okay. <laughs> like, I got, <laughs> I got to wake up early tomorrow. But if he went missing, like, the next time, unless I think that he left me because of that, I don't think I would include it. It's just so intimate. Right. Like, it seems like extra details that don't have anything to do with, like, hey, let's find this woman. Yeah. And I think that it stuck out to investigators as well, because even though it seems small, they can tell that clearly it stuck with him, like it bothered him. Mm -hmm. So anyways, he goes on to say that he woke up at 5 the next morning to their baby crying, but he realized Meng Chi was gone, so then he got up to look for her. Now, he couldn't find her, but that's when he realized that her keys and her phone were still there, so he just went back to bed. 
Okay, if I woke up and Justin was gone, but like all of his stuff was still there. It's even more weird. I don't think I'd go back to bed. Yeah, I I would like search the house. I would find him, I feel like. And to point out again, this is an apartment. So it's not even like, I think about like your parents' big farmhouse, right? If your you dad wasn't upstairs, like... upstairs, go to the basement, go out to the like... Yeah. Out in the land, whatever. But this is yeah. a contained space. Yeah, there's not a lot of places to look. So even more concerning that all of her stuff isn't there. She's not around. Again, it's not like, oh, he's just like laying on the couch in the basement like he always does. I'll see him in the morning. I don't know. It's, again, just a little weird. But he goes back to bed. And then he says he got up again around 8 because their daughter was crying again. And again, Mengqi still wasn't back. But he didn't try to figure out where she was. Instead, dude put his daughter in the car and took a drive to the town of Jefferson City, which is like 30 minutes away, to quote-unquote relax. Why the fuck does he want to relax? He just woke up, right? Yeah. This is the moment that stress and anxiety work for you. You channel Mm -hmm. that into solving the problem. In this case, the problem is finding your missing wife. Yeah. It gets even sketchier because he goes on to say that he'd never really been to Jefferson City before, but apparently he liked it because... Okay. Yeah, listen to this. Because later that day, while he still has no idea where his wife is, he took his daughter again and drove around to another nearby town that he's also not familiar with to, again, relax. Now, he says that he was looking for a place to take a hike with his one-year-old daughter. Like, that's why he's doing all this driving around. Ashley. Brit. Nothing about hiking with a child, let alone a one-year-old, is relaxing. Yeah, and here's the thing. It's not the hike so much for me because, again, this is where everyone's a little different. I love being outside. And it actually can be very relaxing. I'd rather be outside on a hike than being just stuck in my living room. Yeah, sure. But to me, it's the random searching of the place to hike. Like, I am on a timer with the one-year-old. there is a schedule. There is a departure time. There is an arrival time. There is a plan. You don't just, like, swirl around and figure it out. And just roam. Yeah. Now, long story short, I'm not sure if he says he actually went on this hike, but he says that after he left his last destination, which was the city of Rochport, about 15 minutes away, he headed back east to Columbia. And the icing on top of this poorly constructed cake was that both times he left the apartment, he locked the door and took Mengqi's keys with him. Uh, So he wasn't expecting her to come back. Exactly. Things are not looking great for Joe here. And at this point, any other theory police may have had about what happened to Mengqi basically goes out the window because this tells them all they need to know. Joe is most likely responsible for her disappearance, but they don't have any proof. Not yet, at least. So they learn a little bit more about the couple's background. Mengqi had emigrated from China in 2012 to get her master's degree at the University of Missouri, and Joe had actually gone to the same school. But they hadn't actually met until 2015 when they were both working as engineers. Meng Chi was Joe's supervisor. And when they started dating at the beginning of 2016, their relationship was a whirlwind. By September of 2017, 21-year-old Joe popped the question. And then just two weeks later, Meng Chi and Joe were married. Two weeks is not much of an engagement. No. And no judgment. Sometimes when you know, you know. But the vibe is that everything was just a little rushed, you know? 
I mean, they had their daughter in October of 2018. And at first, from the outside, everything seemed to be going well, rushed or not. That is until Meng Chi's disappearance. According to reporting by Skylar Rossi for the Columbia Missourian, Meng Chi's parents fly in from China less than a week after she was reported missing. Now, they don't speak English, so they have to work with translators. But pretty much as soon as they're in the States, they start working with detectives to offer any help they can. Now, her parents say that they haven't been in contact with her since she disappeared, which to them means she didn't just walk away. She and her mother have a standing video call every single day. And they know that she missed her call on the day she disappeared. And she hardly ever missed that call, which actually had prompted Meng Chi's mom, Karen, to contact Joe. But when she tried, he never answered. So desperate for information, she called a friend of her daughter's and asked her to run over and check on her. And it was only then that Joe admitted to anyone that he didn't know where Meng Chi was. So honestly, who knows how long he would have kept that info to himself had her parents not had this standing video call and kind of intervened. So that's what prompted him to finally call? I mean, what if the mom didn't have the friend's number? There's so much here. Yeah, it seems like that is what made him call. And again, he called 311, like that weird information number. That was weird to me at the beginning, like not emergency services. What? Yeah. And what they end up finding out as they're, again, talking to Meng Chi's parents and everyone is he hadn't even informed his own family that his wife was missing. So they're really having to pull this out of him. Now, even though Joe clearly didn't talk to anyone, police start talking to everyone they can. Friends, family, even Joe himself. And surprise, surprise. Let me guess. Their marriage isn't what it seemed to be. Brett, it is like you've done this before. (laughs) So Joe admits that their relationship was contentious at times. And he felt like they were growing apart, especially when it came to physical intimacy, which, again, this ties all back to that massage, that weird detail that Mm -hmm, he had. mm -hmm. He also told police that he suspected that his wife had been flirting with this guy that she knew. And they also learned from one of Meng Chi's former boyfriends that she had reached out to him and asked him for information about divorce attorneys. And that was back in August. But it's actually Meng Chi's mom who is able to give them the most insight into the couple's dynamics. K-Run says Joe was super controlling. And despite Meng Chi being a really social person, he hated when she went out, especially if he wasn't with her. And she also says that he'd get upset with her if she left home for, quote-unquote, too long. So this isn't just a not-great marriage. She was in an emotionally abusive relationship. Exactly. Now, at this point, and we're about a week into the investigation, all eyes are on Joe, who, by all accounts, doesn't even seem all that concerned. He's just living his life, going to class because he's still in college and taking care of his daughter. Which is why it's odd when he speaks to reporters for the first time on October 15th. According to reporting by Gladys Batista for KRCG-TV, Joe tells reporters that they were growing apart in the past few months. And he knows Meng Chi was talking to someone else romantically. But then He's also quick to say that she's a doting mother, stating, quote, she's been a great mom, like the best mom ever, end quote. I'm sorry, she's been a great mom? That is past tense. You caught that. Now, the one thing I will say is 
I mean, what he's saying, so right, he says in one breath, like, oh, I think she was romantically involved with someone, but she's been a great mom. So if the implication that he's trying to make is that she ran off with another man, then to be fair, like abandoning your kid is not a stellar mom move. But also, like, nobody believes that at this point, right? Like, so I think they're honing in on the same thing you did. And this whole interview is just pretty weird. Like, there's even one part where he's saying she might have left because she was scared and confused and felt like she was alone, but he doesn't really explain why she might have felt that way. All in all, this interview he does doesn't clear up anything. So that same day, police bring him into the station for a formal interview. And he tells basically the same story. But they also asked to see his cell phone this time. And listen, if they weren't already convinced Joe had something to do with Meng Chi's disappearance, what they find on his phone all but confirms it. First, they get his location data for the night Meng Chi disappeared and the morning after. When they take a look, pretty much everything matches the route Joe described until the very end of that second trip, the one where he said he wanted to take a hike with his baby. After he left Roachport, he drove west to areas along Highway 41 and the Lamine River, which are literally in the opposite direction of his house. And then he stayed in that general area for about 45 minutes. Did he actually go hiking? I don't know. I mean, he obviously did something in that area. Police just don't know what yet. But they do make note that both of the two places he went to that day were, like, right on the Missouri River. And one of them was in this super secluded wooded area. Weird. That seems like the perfect place to, I don't know, hide a body. It does. But for whatever reason, investigators, when they see this information, they don't, like, send out search parties just yet. Now, they also find hours of audio recordings of arguments between Meng Chi and Joe, where Joe's heard saying things like, quote, go back to China, and quote, <sighs> I'm ready to be done talking to you forever. And listen, those things that I said, those are the tame ones. To sum it up, Joe is heard being beyond emotionally abusive to Meng Chi. He is misogynistic. He is racist. He threatens her saying he will, quote, bury the earth under you and, quote, I don't like being with you. I'm eager to end it. Those are pretty telling statements. And I don't know why he would keep something like that on his own phone. Yeah. So weirdly enough, the recordings come from Meng Chi and Joe's phones, which I agree is super strange. I don't know why they were recorded in the first place. I don't know if they were recorded and then shared between phones or if they each had different conversations. Uh I mean, at this point, who knows what's going on in this guy's head? Now, two days later, on the 17th, police search a pond located near their apartment complex. I'm not sure what brought them to the pond in the first place. Like, it's not one of the places that Joe stopped on either of his super sketchy drives, but, I mean, it's at their apartment complex. I don't know. Either way, it doesn't really matter because they come up empty. Okay, but why haven't they searched those other places yet? I don't know. I mean, he made a few stops, and some of the places that he went to are pretty remote. So, I mean, if he's getting rid of evidence, or at this point, maybe even her body, he could have hidden her anywhere. And really, I don't want to understate how massive of an area we're talking about to have to search. Okay, you gotta start somewhere, and those areas aren't getting any smaller. No, and I totally get it, but like, 
at the same time, you have to deal in the realm of like reality and the reality is resources are limited. So Mm -hmm. I think they're trying to learn more so they can hone in and be as successful as possible with whatever search they conduct. And they're not just like, again, you don't want to burn all your resources just starting everywhere. And then when you feel like you have something really solid, you don't have the time, money, manpower, whatever. Right, right. And it might have been good that they waited because, listen, they do learn more. They learn that Mengchi might not have been the only person he hurt. A day after the pond search, a woman comes forward and says that back in February, she received a call from Mengchi and subsequent photos showing bruising on the bottom of a female child, which presumably is their daughter. So by October 25th, investigators get a search warrant and head over to Joe's apartment. And when they arrive, they find Joe packing. He's loading a bunch of clothes and other items into his car with the help of his mother, Jean. And police are like, yeah, hey, you can't just take off, especially not with your child that you are now suspected of abusing. So they don't let him leave, and they search the apartment. And when they do, they confiscate several items, including both cell phones, at least one of their computers, a pair of muddy boots, and a backpack of Joe's that has two notebooks in it. And what's in the notebook is wild. Police describe it as several handwritten scripts. I'm sorry, scripts? Mm-hmm. So dude's going to start a podcast? Right. no. Honestly, I think that would be almost less weird. He wrote out ways to speak to the press. And he also had like this weird diary of the days leading up to Mengchi's disappearance where he wrote, I mean, hour by hour where he was. So a timeline, like he's trying to get his story straight. Yes. And listen, I've said this before where... If something like this happens, someone disappears, I think it's actually really beneficial to write stuff down because the farther you get away from an event, the muddier things get. And I can't tell you how many people Mm -hmm. we've talked to that are like, God, I just don't remember. I wish I did. So to me, it's not the timeline is not even to me the bizarre thing. It goes back to these scripts. I'm going to say the timeline with these scripts, I feel like changes everything. Because basically the scripts look like they are answers that he wrote down for interviews with the media. And I'm telling you, they are so weird. I can't even do them justice without just, like, reading them verbatim. So, Britt, will you just read these? Oh, boy. Here we go. So, one says, refuse to answer any speculation. Another says, only speak in the present tense. Nice. Which also he didn't do, by the way. That does not feel like something you should need reminded about, right? Mm -hmm. And then this other one says, there's only one emotion the public will relate to. Sadness sorrow. It's this is sickening, Ashley. It's super eerie, right? But even with this, they still don't feel confident charging him in connection with Mengchi's disappearance. Although they do feel confident about the child abuse accusations. According to reporting by Gregory Daly and Kyrie on Lane for KRCG TV, police ask him about the incident with the bruising and he admits to being the one who caused it, but he said that it was an accident. He said that his daughter was crying, so perhaps he, quote-unquote, held her too hard. Okay, we both know that would not cause Mm -hmm. bruising like that. Of course not. And police aren't buying that line either. They say that the bruise was more likely a result of a strike. Luckily, they have probable cause to arrest him, and he is booked on charges of child abuse and neglect and held on a $500,000 bond. 
Even though this isn't related to Meng Chi's disappearance, it'll at least keep him in custody so they can keep searching for her. According to reporting by Hunter M. Gilbert for the Columbia Missourian, Meng Chi's parents file for custody of their granddaughter. However, so does Joe's mother. Now, sins of a son are not the sins of his mother necessarily, but I can totally understand Meng Chi's family not wanting their granddaughter to be in the custody of anyone named Elledge at this point. Well, and not to mention Jean, his mom, was with Joe when he was caught packing up his car to leave. Yeah. So I think their concerns are pretty warranted. A hundred percent. Now, here's where the story kind of splits in two. Because as the beginnings of a custody battle are brewing, police announce publicly that Meng Chi's disappearance is now a criminal investigation and foul play is suspected. But I'm going to focus on the custody side of things first. The public is fully on Meng Chi's parents' side, with Hunter Gilbert reporting for the Columbia, Missourian that over a dozen people show up to the courthouse to show their support. And over 100 people sign a letter asking the presiding judge to award custody to Meng Chi's parents. There are a lot of hearings over the following weeks, and they dredge up a lot about not only Joe's competency as a father, but also his relationship with Meng Chi and her whole family. Like, for instance, when their daughter was born, Meng Chi's parents actually came to stay with them for a while just to help out, which is an amazing thing to do. And it's all well and good, but they say that Joe treated them horribly when they came to help. He would make fun of them for not speaking English. He even told them to leave and go back to China after he thought that their mom was using a cutting board the wrong way. I mean, I cook a lot, a lot, and I don't think there's even a way to use a cutting board wrong. How is that a thing? It's not a thing. No idea. So you can understand why Meng Chi's parents are making it very clear that they're not comfortable with anyone but them having custody of their granddaughter. And where is the baby through all this? So she's actually with Joe's mom since she technically filed for custody first, mm. which hence this whole battle. Now, as these hearings are happening, everyone is still looking for Meng Chi. And investigators are finally focusing on Joe's movements from the day she disappeared. According to reporting by Hunter Gilbert, in a press release issued on November 15th, police ask for hunters and landowners to remain on the lookout for anything out of the ordinary. They also release a map of Boone County and eight adjacent counties through which police believe Joseph drove through from the time he told police he knew Munchie was missing to when he actually reported her missing. But still, no luck. And so a little under two weeks later, with no new developments, they step up their game. Police, with the help of the Mid-Missouri Sheriff's Dive Team, begin searching the Lamine River for Meng Chi's body. And divers are searching despite freezing temperatures. And they do this for two weeks. But even two weeks in, they still don't have anything. And listen, they're not just searching one spot. This river is about 60 miles long, so there is so much ground to cover. An Illinois-based company that specializes in searching bodies of water with sonar technology even joins the search to give them a hand. But even though police feel that they're searching in the right place, the sonar also finds no sign of Mengchi. Meanwhile, Joe's still making his way through the court system. And in late December, a grand jury indicts him on an additional charge, first degree endangering the welfare of a child. 
Boone County Prosecutor Dan Knight states that he added that charge because police believe Joe caused Meng Chi to be separated from their child. And that separation caused, quote, a substantial risk to the life or body or health to her, end quote. The prosecutor also implies that this new charge isn't just about the baby. He firmly believes that Joe killed Meng Chi. And so he says that he's going to prove Joe killed her through the child endangerment trial. So he's going to use Joe's time under oath to gather information about Meng Chi's disappearance. Bingo. And we've seen this in other cases. Like, mm-hmm. if they don't think they can win with a criminal trial, victims' families will often go, like, the civil suit route to get more information. But the prosecutor has to be super careful. According to reporting by Danielle Duclos for the Columbia Missourian, a professor of criminal law at MU, Ben Trachtenberg, explains that if the questioning does not directly relate to the charges, then it becomes a potential issue of scope and ethics. However, with the way Dan's brought the child endangerment charge, it seems like he's saying the endangerment was caused directly by Joe separating Wang Chi from their child. So in that case, questioning relating to her disappearance would be fair game. Right. So this is all basically legal gymnastics. Yeah. <laughs> He's basically attempting to try Joe for murder without a body and without a murder charge. Right. So on December 23rd, Joe pleads not guilty to the new charge. And the holiday season comes and goes without any sign of Meng Chi. By this point, it's almost impossible for the search to continue because the river's freezing over. And again, they've been searching for weeks, Mm -hmm. so much so that there's not much more they feel they can even do. There's also a preliminary decision reached in the custody case, and it's decided that Joe's parents and Meng Chi's parents will share custody. And although I don't think Meng Chi's parents are super happy with the limited arrangement, the court seems to think that that's what's best for the baby. And now is when things finally get going. Because on February 19th, 2020, Joseph Elledge is charged with first-degree murder for the death of Meng Chi Ji, despite her body not being found. F***ing finally. Yeah, it is a relief for everyone. But investigators still aren't giving up hope of finding Meng Chi's remains. And so as the weather warms, they slowly push on searching in the Lamine River area through the spring into May 2020. There are several last-ditch efforts to find her, but summer gives way to fall. And according to Mark Slavitt's reporting for KRCG-TV, a full year after Meng Chi disappeared, police end their search for her body. Meanwhile, Joe is denied bond, and his trial date is set for November 1st, 2021. But as Meng Chi's loved ones prepare to fight for justice without her remains, they get the news that they've been both hoping for and dreading. According to a press release from the Columbia State Police released on March 25, 2021, a hiker at Rockbridge State Park discovers human remains and various items in a shallow grave. They immediately contact the park rangers, who in turn contact the police. They rush to the scene, and even before they can be identified, police suspect that they have found Meng Chi. And sure enough, on April 6th, it is confirmed that they found her. And do you want to know just this terrible detail that I can't get over? That park where Meng Chi was found was the same park where Joe proposed to her. God, that is such a cruel, cruel connection. And what's wild to me is finding her here. 
this is closer to Joe's story than I ever expected it to be. Law enforcement didn't even look here because they figured he was lying about the hike, but I guess maybe he wasn't? Well, you know, I don't think that the truth was only in the hiking part of the story. When Mengchi was found, she had four broken ribs right where Joe had described giving her a massage, although they're not able to determine whether they were broken before or after she died. They're also not able to determine her cause of death because her remains are so decomposed. But I actually want to rewind for a second because even though her cause of death is unclear and her remains are decomposed, police are able to definitively put Joe at that park. Because I don't know if you remember, do you remember those muddy boots that they found at his apartment? Honestly, this has been such a journey. I do not. I do not remember those boots at all. Yeah, it's because they found the boots at the same time that they found those scripts. That was kind of the highlight. But they did find muddy boots at his apartment at the same time they found the scripts. And what they did is they had taken those into evidence and they compared the dried mud to mud found near the grave where Meng Chi was buried. And sure enough, it is a match. It is the same freaking mud. There are also juniper needles stuck to them. And what happens next is really freaking cool. So you know how all living things have DNA, people, animals? Yeah. Turns out even plants. Well, apparently DNA testing for plants is a thing. What? I know. So basically what investigators do with this case is they're able to extract DNA from those needles and match them to a tree near the burial site. How are we like 600 episodes in and I'm just now learning this is possible? I literally have no idea why this has never come up before. I love that, again, to your point, 600 episodes in and we're still learning new things. So basically, with everything they've got, there is no way he can say that he wasn't there. All of this evidence is piling up against Joe, and his defense is pulling out all the stops to try and keep as much evidence against him from being presented at trial as possible. And this includes those recordings of Joe and Meng Chi arguing, the ones where he said that he couldn't wait to end things. But the prosecution's not having it, and they fight to obviously keep everything in. Dan Knight, who again is the prosecutor, argues that these recordings prove that Joseph hated Meng Chi and that they ultimately play into his larger theory about what happened to her. He believes that Joe tried to have sex with Meng Chi the night she disappeared, and she said no, as she had been doing for some time, and this made Joe snap, so he killed her. The recordings are allowed in, and the trial begins on November 1st, 2021, but the defense comes out swinging with a curveball that no one saw coming, In their opening statement, they say that Joe did kill Meng Chi, but it was an accident. You have got to be kidding me. Nope. Joe's defense attorney says that on the night of October 8th, the couple got into an argument and began shoving one another. When he shoved her one last time, she fell and Joseph heard a thud. He decided to go for a walk afterwards just to clear his head, and he assumed Meng Chi was just asleep in bed. When he got home, he went to bed too, didn't realize anything was wrong until he woke up to their daughter crying and found Meng Chi dead beside him. But the prosecution paints a totally different picture. They say that their relationship was toxic. Joe was abusive and Meng Chi was getting ready to leave him. He couldn't handle the rejection. So during that massage, Joe got so angry that he pressed harder and harder on Meng Chi's back to the point where she couldn't breathe. 
They allege he pressed so hard that he broke her ribs and didn't let up until she was dead. According to reporting by Elise Person for KRCG-TV, the prosecution also brings two researchers in to testify about the validity of the mud and plant evidence. And they say it's extremely unlikely that the mud on the boots came from anywhere else besides where Mengchi's body was found. But, of course, the defense brings their own experts in as well. Specifically, a pathologist who testifies that the trauma to Mengchi's ribs could be caused by a forceful push into a countertop. But it couldn't have happened accidentally. That's the caveat. Upon cross-examination, the prosecution confirms that even if her ribs were broken by being shoved into something, it would have had to have been a purposeful, Mm. forceful push at the hands of someone else. Now, Joe also takes the stand in his own defense. But I'm not going to bore you with any of what he has to say because he just sticks to, you know, this whole thing's an accident story. So fast forward to November 11th, 2021, both sides rested their cases, and it doesn't take long for the jury to deliberate because just six and a half hours later, Joe is found guilty of murder in the second degree. That's not the first degree conviction the prosecution was hoping for, but it's still a guilty verdict. Joe is sentenced on January 7th, 2022, and in a bit of poetic justice, he is sentenced to 28 years, the same age Meng Chi was when he took her life. So whatever happened to the other charges he was facing for endangerment and child abuse? Well, so on that front, he ultimately gets charged with one count of child abuse or neglect, one count of first-degree endangerment of a child, and one count of third-degree domestic assault, all of which he actually pleads guilty to later that year in February. He was sentenced to 10 years for those on top of the 28 for Meng Chi's homicide. As far as I can tell, their daughter still lives with Joseph's mother in Missouri. But Meng Chi's parents, Kei Ren and Zhao Lin, get updates and regular contact with her. And even though she's safe and healthy, she'll never get to grow up knowing her mom. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, help is available. The number for the National Domestic Violence Hotline is listed below in our show notes. It is 1-800-799-7233. You can find all the source material for this episode on our website, crimejunkiepodcast.com. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at crimejunkiepodcast. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, but stick around. We've got some good for you. Ashley, it is seriously almost the end of April already, which means it's time to share the good with everybody. If this is your first time you're listening to The Good Segment, don't forget you can visit crimejunkiepodcast.com to learn more. You can find the direct link to The Good page in the show notes. And Ashley, I think I speak for the both of us in asking everyone to please keep sharing the good with us. We have absolutely loved being able to share these stories with the rest of the Crime Junkie community. And I know, it's so great. It just wouldn't be possible without your incredible submissions. So you can submit your story to the good page as well. All right, let me read you one of my favorite messages that we've gotten recently. 
Dear Crime Junkie, I was involved in a car accident and had to go to physical therapy. During that time, my therapist told me about Crime Junkie. My answer was, I'm a police officer. Why would I listen to people (laughs) telling me about crime? (laughs) I decided to give it a go. I have been a faithful listener since then. Some of the stories told with a twist and turn and me yelling at the radio because I can't believe how some of the victims' families get victimized all over again. The show helped me as an officer to become more attuned to the victims' stories. For example, one of the Crime Junkie episodes about teen romance violence, Pena and Walker. After I was done listening to that episode, I received a dispatch call about a subject threatening to commit suicide. When I arrived, I saw a male walking away from a female. EMS personnel and I got him to stop. While he was speaking with the medic, I asked the female, why is this gentleman trying to kill himself? Her response gave me pause. She told him that it was over between the two of them. That is why he said to her that he was going to kill himself. Crime Junkie alert, because of the Pena and Walker episode, I asked more questions that I and other officers usually ask. And that is when she told me that every time he physically abused her, she tried to leave him. The male tells her that he would kill himself. Needless to say, my training from Crime Junkie kicked into full gear. I explained that what he was doing was a form of control and gave her all the information needed to get a protection order and give her an avenue of escape from that toxic relationship. In closing, I appreciate the work you guys are doing. Keep it up. Mm, I'm about to cry. That is amazing. I love that. To me, this is always the best compliment because I know we can be critical on law enforcement. We're critical when you do a bad job, but I love to applaud them when they do a good job. And I know for every bad officer, there is a good one out there. At least I like to hope. I take it as such a compliment when we get messages like this where, to me, I look at them as they're supposed to be the experts. And when someone like them can say like, oh, I'm still learning from you, who we're just out here, you know, sometimes thinking we're only educating, you know, the people on the other end of police. I don't know. I don't know why Mm -hmm. this is like, it's so meaningful to me, but it really, really is. And this is just like, you know, one of the outcomes that we aim for each and every week. Like, you know, yes, I want to solve the cases. I want to raise the funds and name the does, but I want to be a part of everyone's life. And I want to make an impact every week and teach something new every week. And I just think it's so cool that we've been able to do that. And I actually have one more that I want us to share. Honestly, Britt, it is just freaking great. Britt, why don't you read this one? Of course. I wanted to tell y'all that I love your podcasts. I started listening last summer and have binged all your projects. I'm a police officer in Fort Worth, Texas. At first, I was skeptical, but I soon realized that you were fair towards my profession, calling out bad investigations and shouting out good ones. See, we do. (laughs) (laughs) I also realized that your podcasts have value in making me a better officer. I have almost 20 years on the job and I'm currently a sergeant in patrol. One of my biggest fears is screwing up an investigation by making errors when we arrive. If we don't interview correctly or protect the crime scene, our patrol officers can taint slash ruin the investigation and chances of future apprehension. Thank you for the time and effort you put into keeping victims in the limelight. I have even used some of your podcast excerpts to teach my patrol team. Please keep up the great work. Isn't that bananas? I love it. I love that. I love this segment so much. You guys are awesome. I know. I think it's so cool. Um, you know, we've just been working on the deck investigation. And I think some people have been like, oh, you're so critical of law enforcement in that. And when I'm we like, need to be. Yeah, like, 
it's the way you should be with any job. And I understand that it's more public facing, but the stakes are so high. You're dealing with people's lives. Mm -hmm. And if we can't look back, if anyone got there at the end of the podcast, what I said is I I don't judge the people now for the mistakes that were made. Like I'm judging you now to see if you're going to like do your best to fix it and correct them. Right. And do the right thing. But if we don't have a conversation about all the things that went wrong and and look at that critically, how are we going to do better? Like that's what that's about. And it's always my intention to see somebody really latch on to that. Like, yeah, I like there were bad investigations. I, I'm listening to everything that happened. I'm making sure I'm not doing that. Damn, if we help one case in Texas because this amazing sergeant is Ugh. like, I'm not doing that shit I heard. Yeah, right, <laughs> How cool right. is that? How cool is that? Crime Junkie is an audio Chuck production. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? 